I believe with all my heart that God is glorified in a growing and vibrant church that feeds on the meat of the word and seeks to carry it out. Amen. You? One thing about growth, however, is that it requires a steady diet of food that is nourishing and healthy. And some of that food tastes great, yet at times there's certain kinds of food that you must acquire a taste for. Is that right? For instance, ask your typical kid how he or she feels about broccoli. It may be good for them, may make them strong and healthy, but many of them just won't swallow it. Moms may later find it in the wash where they've stuffed it into their pockets. <laughs> Face it, they'd rather have McDonald's, right? Little kids and broccoli, we often deal with certain biblical truths and spiritual disciplines in the same exact manner. We recognize their benefit and their spiritual health to our intimacy with God and growing in that relationship. We know that through personal application and diligent practice, those things will result in a strong faith and a balanced walk with God. Yet we don't like the taste sometimes, not too palatable, so we kind of stash them away in our mental pockets, hoping that we'll never have to deal with them again. But sometimes, more often than not, sooner or later, they turn up in the wash. Now you may be thinking, uh-oh, we're done. He's setting us up. Party's over. Easter's passed, and it's a long haul to Christmas. <laughs> We're in for some broccoli now. No happy meal today. <laughs> well, it's not as bad as all that. But for many pastors, at least for me, whenever the topic of money and giving and stewardship comes up, there's a tendency to feel like we're trying to force feed broccoli. And uh, teaching what the Bible has to say about stewardship, tithing, and giving engenders all kinds of reactions from people. It reminds me of uh, the reaction one southern preacher got when he approached the subject in his Sunday message. Some of you may have heard this before, but it was a pretty lively group of people. And the people were more vocal in their responses than normal. And they were really letting the pastor know how he was doing. And at one point in his message, this particular pastor was on a roll. He's saying, now people, he's saying, let the church walk. And some of the crowd responded and say, amen, brother, let it walk. And the preacher continued on, oh, let the church run. Oh, let it run, amen. They said, let it run, let it run. And he was really feeling good about himself. And he said, we need to let the church fly, folks. Let it fly. And everybody's saying, yes, pastor, let it fly. The pastor says, it's going to take some money to make the church fly. And they all jumped up and said, let it walk. <laughs> let it walk. And that's the way sometimes people feel when we get into this subject of giving. We want to walk. But I must tell you, in all honesty, that I don't like to speak on this subject. And the reason is, is that there are so many ministries out there, millions of dollars being spent and being donated to ministries by their use of gimmicks and programs to manipulate and exploit people, putting them on a guilt trip if they don't give. No wonder it leaves a bad taste in our mouths. And it drives people away from the church. I'm convinced that as the church of Jesus Christ, we don't need all that junk. 
We don't need to manipulate or produce guilt in anyone. We don't need to belabor or bludgeon people on this issue. On the other hand, as a teaching pastor, I also know that there is something that I must do. And here it is. I must clearly and truthfully teach the Word of God, allowing the Spirit of God to produce the kind of giving to God which glorifies God. And that should be the church's sole motivation when it comes to giving, to glorify God. Amen? Years ago, Oswald Chambers said, a New Testament preacher has to be surgical. And that's true. To teach the whole counsel of God means to understand that the living word will penetrate the heart and mind like a scalpel. Incisively and deeply. To remove misconceptions and diseased ideas concerning our faith. But always, always for the purpose of restoring spiritual health and vitality. That was also Malachi's calling in the Old Testament. He was a surgeon. His words, for better or better, God's words through him, communicated through him, were sharp, they were piercing, and precisely delivered and aimed primarily at the heart of God's people for the distinct purpose of restoring them to spiritual health and vitality. And you've probably gotten a taste of all that so far as we've gone through this book. And as we've seen, Malachi has dealt with some serious, very serious, but very necessary issues every one of them designed to call God's people back into a healthy relationship with him. And the topic to which Malachi speaks next is no different. He addresses this issue of stewardship. Again, it's an issue as relevant to us today as it was to the people of 450 B.C. because stewardship is a barometer of our spirituality. The way we use our money our wealth, our time, our resources, is an indicator of what we really believe about God. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3 as we again continue on this series. Malachi chapter 3. I'm going to read to you verses 7 to 12. This is where we're going to be for a couple of weeks. Malachi 3, 7 to 12. From the days of, our, of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the, into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a delightful land says the Lord of hosts I want you to take notice of verse 12 here all the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a delightful 
land, says the Lord of hosts. I'm convinced that God's glory becomes visible when his people are in a healthy, growing relationship with him and who in this age are God's people. Tell me. Who are God's people? We are God's people, the church. Is that right? Therefore, it follows that a growing church will glorify God through its stewardship. For the next few weeks, I want to look in detail at what God says about the kind of stewardship that glorifies him. If this text in Malachi tells us anything, it clearly spells out the importance of understanding God's heart in this often neglected area of our journey with him. If a growing church glorifies God in its giving, then we need to get a hold of a few things. First of all, we need to get his perspective on it. What is his perspective? We should know his purposes for it. We ought to reflect on the biblical pattern that he's given us, and we can rest on God's promises regarding our giving. So those things we're going to cover. When we adopt God's blueprint for giving, his blessings overflow, it says here in Malachi. To dismiss it is to invite the charge of spiritual embezzlement. And none of us wants to be guilty of that, do we? So let's seek to understand God's perspective. And I want to start with the New Testament because we're New Testament people, right? Turn in your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16. Now in chapter 15, Paul outlines and he discusses the greatest event in human history. It's all about the resurrection. And not only does Paul discuss the fact that Christ was raised, but that one day we will become like him. Anybody else find that exciting? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. Following this eloquent theological treatise on the resurrection, which turns our thinking towards heaven, Paul abruptly shifts gears And brings us right back into the real world that we live in. And in verse 1 of chapter 16, what's it say? Now concerning the collection for the saints. This is a strange transition, isn't it? Why would he do that? Why would he lift us up to the glories of thinking about the resurrection and being in heaven with Christ? And then, now concerning the collection for the saints... I'll tell you why. Because with Paul, there is a very simple principle that you can apply to all of his writings. Every single writing of Paul, every letter, you can apply this principle, and it's this. Doctrine implies practice. Doctrine implies practice. In other words, now that you know something about the there and then theologically, do something with it in the here and now tangibly. That's what he's saying. 
in every book that he wrote, you can apply that principle. Usually the first half of the book's theological, last half of the book is the practical application of the first half. He lays down the foundation. John MacArthur writes, a glimpse into the future lays great responsibility for the present. When the Spirit of God in 1 Corinthians 15 shows us the fantastic reality of Resurrection Day, it has a tremendous impact on the way we live right now, even on how we put our money in the offering plate. Paul's not the only one who emphasized this connection of our spiritual outlook and the way we view material wealth. Jesus did the same exact thing. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, I want to read it to you out of the message. Jesus says this, Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust, or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from the moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The issue is very simple. Jesus says, invest in forever. Invest in forever. That's a great slogan, isn't it? Say it with me. Invest in forever. After all, if the here and now is going to be dead and gone, and by the way, you can't take it with you, then why waste all your money on unnecessary things? Invest in forever. We all have stuff, don't we? We have stuff. We see it, want it, buy it, display it, insure it, and compare it with other people's stuff. We talk about whether or not they have too much stuff, and we envy or pass judgment on other people's collections of stuff. We collect our own little pile of stuff. We imagine that if that pile got big enough, we would feel successful or secure. You get a house, then you have to get stuff to put it in. You keep getting more stuff and you need a bigger house. A house, said comedian George Carlin, is just a pile of stuff with a cover over it. <laughs> now, I've been spending lots of time moving people lately. My son moved yesterday, some friends moved. There's a lot of stuff in our houses, isn't there? Some people have actually survived without owning a house. Jesus, for instance. Did you know that there are now more than 30,000 self-storage facilities in this country offering over a billion square feet for people to store their stuff. In the 1960s, this industry was not even heard of. It didn't exist. We now spend $12 billion a year just to pay someone to store our extra stuff. $12 billion a year. It's larger than the music industry, self-storage. Realize that? Some people have a gift of acquiring stuff. William Randolph Hearst was a stuffaholic. He had 3,500-year-old Egyptian statues, medieval Flemish tapestries, and centuries-old hand-carved ceilings, and some of the greatest works of art of all time, most of which came from Sweden. He built a house of 72,000 square feet to put all his stuff in. He acquired property for this house, 265,000 acres. 
He originally owned 50 miles of the California coastline. He collected stuff for 88 years. Then you know what he did? He died. Short-sighted. Now people go through Hearst's house by the thousands, Hearst Castle. And they all say the same thing. Wow, he sure had a lot of stuff. <laughs> people go through life, they get stuff, and then they die. And they leave all their stuff behind. What happens to it? The kids argue over it. The kids who haven't died yet, who really are just pre-dead people, They go over to their parents' house. They pick through their parents' old stuff, like vultures, deciding which stuff they want to take to their houses. And they say to themselves, now this is my stuff. And then they die, and some new vultures come for it. People come and go, nations go to war over stuff. Families are split apart because of stuff. Husbands and wives argue more about stuff than any other single issue in their marriage. Prisons are full of street thugs and CEOs who committed crimes to acquire stuff. Most of us have too much stuff. Seen the movie Wally? Any seen it? Raise your hand. If you don't, if you haven't seen it, you got to see it. It's a great, great movie. Not much talking in it the whole time. It's just a little robot that co collects trash. Now imagine sitting in the movie theater watching Wally, for those of you that have seen it, with your kids. As you see the last operating trash compacting robot on Earth, that's who Wally is, sort through endless piles of human refuse, stuff, you feel this Holy Spirit challenge. And then you decide you want to recycle and go green and take care of God's creation. And then you're watching and Wally comes over and he picks up this little jewel box, like a ring box, and he opens it up and he sees the two carat diamond ring and he reaches in and he picks it out and he throws it in the junk pile and saves the box. <laughs> and you hear all the women in the audience gasp. <laughs> At this part of the film, my wife Denise breaks out in a cold sweat. And suddenly it hits you and you connect with the truth that we're all storing up treasures for ourselves that have no eternal value. Amen. It's all a bunch of junk. It's all going to burn. It's all stuff. Somebody once told me you can tell a lot about a person's spiritual commitments and maturity by looking at their checkbook register. It's a written testimony of how much you and I are growing in our relationship with God and whether or not we're glorifying him in the use of our resources. Let's lay the cards on the table over the next few weeks. Let's honestly ask the questions and sincerely consider our answers to those questions. The only kind of giving that brings glory to God and blesses us in return is the giving that is according to God's perspective, not our own. First of all, let me say at the outset that there is nothing wrong with being wealthy. The Bible clearly proclaims the blessedness of possessions 
and even provides us with the principles to gain wealth. The scripture in no way condemns money in and of itself, but why does God give us all that we have? That's the question. Why does he allow us to have the capacity to build wealth? What perspective should we take on that? Well, let me give you just three things right off the bat. Number one, we need to acknowledge the possessor. It's God. When it comes right down to the dividing line in our, in our giving, is to who, the dividing line is to who we feel all this stuff belongs to. It belongs to God. When the offering is taken, what's the question we normally ask ourselves? How much of my paycheck will I give to God today? The truth is, is what we're really saying is, how much of God's money will I keep for myself? It belongs to him, not us. That's in anything across the board. Haggai chapter 2, verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and those who live in it. You know what that means? Not only is the cash God's property, we're God's property. We are. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 29 for a moment. 1 Chronicles 29. Verse 11. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 and... Read on down with me. This is a great prayer. Might want to highlight this prayer. Make it yours. David's blessing the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And he says in verse 10, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious Name. Let's skip down to verse 16. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand and all is yours. Notice that? It's all his. We're just giving it back to him. David's words here from the right perspective. The fact is that whatever we have has been given to us by the grace of God and it is his ultimate possession. How we use it determines whether or not we really believe in that truth. We are stewards and a steward is one who manages and oversees another person's resources. He's not the owner, he's just the manager. Folks, as stewards of God's estate, so to speak, whether you are talking about the revealed truths of God the gospel, the mysteries in the Bible, or with which, which we are entrusted, or the provided material blessings of God, 
We are called in the scriptures to be faithful with those things. Faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, It is required of stewards to be found trustworthy. Are we trustworthy? Are we faithful with the things God has given to us? Whether it's, you're talking about your material resources or the spiritual gifts that God has given you. Jesus pointed to the fact that if we mismanage our financial responsibilities, then we certainly shouldn't be trusted with greater spiritual responsibilities which affect the destiny of people's souls. Luke chapter 16, verses 10 and 11 says this. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Jesus had a way of getting right to the heart of an issue, doesn't he? God wants us to be responsible with, uh, with his possessions to use it for his glory. So in the process of cultivating the proper perspective on giving, the first thing to do is to acknowledge the possessor. Who owns it? Whatever we have is not really ours. It's God. Secondly, we need to embrace the priority. Embrace the priority. Give your best. Give your best. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says this. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Now the word first here can be taken to mean best or first fruits. The command here is to give off the top of the heap. The choicest and the best that we have. Why? Well, it's a pretty easy question to answer, isn't it? Because we're giving back to who? God. And you tell me, what does God deserve? What does God deserve? He gave us his best when he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, didn't he? He withheld nothing. Scripture says, for God so loved the world that he gave his best, his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me ask you a question. When you give to the Lord, are you giving off the top the best of what you have or what's left over after everybody else gets in on the deal? You figure out all your other finances first and then decide on Sunday morning what you can spare or the other way around. I understand there are all kinds of bills to pay and mouths to feed, but God knows all about that, doesn't he? He really does. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we'll find that many of the bills that we have are, could be categorized in that list of non-essentials. Our nation's current economic distress has exposed the fact that many people have overextended themselves to the point that they are unable to give to God the way that God desires them to give. What's the solution? Well, 
Start turning that financial pattern of life around and return as quickly as possible to God's priority. And there are ways to do that. There are all kinds of Christ-centered ministries and services available, even in this church, that can help you with that kind of thing. We have stewardship people in our church that can help you with those kinds of things. I mean, there's all kinds of resources to turn it around. I love the way the message renders this verse in Proverbs chapter 3. It says, honor God with everything you own. Give him the first and the best. And then there's this promise involved in in the very next verse, verse 10. It says, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. That's a promise God's giving us here. There are many similar principles and promises throughout the scripture. God says that when we give our best, He blesses us in return. Now, don't misunderstand me. Our primary motivation here should not be to get a blessing. It's not what the Scripture is saying. We're to give out of an obedient and willing heart that loves the Lord. That's God's primary interest. He's not so much concerned with the amount, but with the attitude behind it. C.H. McIntosh put it this way, God's holy eye rests not upon the purse, but upon the heart. He weighs not the amount, but the motive. Where the heart beats true to his person, the hand will be open to his cause. It's a good statement. So not only must we acknowledge the possessor and embrace the priority, but also, finally, we need to exercise the principle of generosity. Generosity begins in our attitude. The right attitude produces a desire to give what God would desire us to give, which usually results in abundance. That's the principle. Second Corinthians in your Bible, chapter 9. Second Corinthians chapter 9. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to go through some of these things in much more detail, but a lot of generalities today. But Second Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6 says this, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. There's a principle. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgivings to God. What's Paul saying here? He's saying we're not supposed to be giving grudgingly or reluctantly or under compulsion, feeling like we're forced to do it. But we should be giving cheerfully. Actually, hilariously, according to the Greek word. How many of us give that way? You know what happens when we give according to that principle? God provides an abundance so that we may be able to meet every other need. There are a number of examples of this principle in Scripture. Let me just give you one. 
Exodus chapter 35. You can turn there if you want to. Exodus chapter 35 and verses, we'll begin in verse 4. Moses spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. Skip down to verse 20 for a moment. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence and everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of the meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Fast forward a little bit to chapter 36, verse 3. They received from Moses all the contributions which the, Lord, the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary and they still continued bringing to him freewill offerings Every morning. And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing. And they said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. For the material that they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. Did you read those words? Their hearts were right. The amount was right. And the blessing was abundant. How many times have you heard a pastor say, stop giving, we got more than enough. Or a ministry on the radio. Stop sending us money. Keep it for yourselves. We don't need it anymore. And yet it happened here and in the Old Testament on more than one occasion. Read 2 Chronicles 31 this week. You see, when we give our best, God returns his best. Prayerfully consider what God wants us to do in every situation about our resources and stewardship. Because the principle of generosity is simply this in the scriptures. Generosity begets generosity. Jesus reiterated the principle in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. He said, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Again, has to do with the heart attitude. It has to do with prayerful consideration of what God wants you to do. I mean, you, I've heard people say, you can't outgive God. Well, you can if your heart's not right. You come in here every week and give your whole paycheck and go home broke and not be able to pay your bills or meet your needs if the heart's not right. But I've also known people who every week when they've come to church, not in this church, but some other friends out of state, every week they take their paycheck and they lay it on the table and they pray, God, how much do you want today? And sometimes they'd give their whole paycheck. And God always supplied their needs. Now, I'm not telling you to go do that. 
But what does the principle say when the heart is right and you're prayerfully considering what God is calling you to do? When we give our best, God shows his best. The thing that we fail to remember is that the opposite is also true. If we're putting our wants ahead of God's desires, then even what we have won't be enough. And you find that to be true all the time. The Israelites learned that lesson the hard way too. In the book of Haggai, you can read that. But they were doing it. They were neglecting their responsibility to give to God. They couldn't give to the work of God because they were using up all his resources. Guess how? On their own pleasures in that book. While the temple stood desolate and unfinished, they were living in luxury. And the personal dream had replaced the biblical mandate. You know, in my dad's day, it was every person's goal to have a comfortable home, a dependable car, and a steady job. That, those were the three things in my dad's day that you, you had dreamed of. Over time, I think that thinking has changed considerably, wouldn't you say? Because most of us have a comfortable home, a dependable car. Although now, a lot of people don't have jobs. I think George Malone was right when he advised that we should put a check on our expanding lifestyle and learn to do a lot more with a lot less. And I think that's happening these days. People are figuring out we need to simplify. Oh, and just so you know, I got to tell you this. We've done that here at the church somewhat. Last October, we were so low in the budget. We were really nervous. We had to call a business meeting and state that if things didn't change around here, we were going to have to shut down some ministries. And then it was going to start going to, you know, shutting down all kinds of things. We'd have to, the pastors and the staff would be giving back their paychecks so that we could just operate around here. But I want to tell you something. Since that day in October, God has completely turned it around. Your generous giving and prayerful consideration as to how to give without even really soliciting anything has put us right back on track and we are right on target for finishing out the year in the black. Only God. Only God could do that. So, and we've been trying to live simply, a little more simply, and not spend money on a lot of things that we had in last year's budget. Now, that's not to say that individuals or the church should seek to live and minister using outdated methods and archaic technology. But we can't be so consumed by the ever-increasing costs of modern conveniences that we are unable to meet the needs of those crying out around us in our own community. I can't help but think of the Amish man who was leaning on his fence watching his new neighbor move in. And after the movers had carted in all kinds of new appliances and electronic and audio video equipment, computers, plush furniture, and costly wall hangings, he called over the fence and said, Hey, if you find out that you're lacking anything, let me know, and I'll show you how to live without it. Now, I have to admit, and maybe you would as well, is that I could do a lot more for God's kingdom if I started to do a lot less for mine. Isn't that true? We all could do that. God wants us to seriously consider the way that we use our resources. The people of Haggai's day and Malachi's day, they didn't understand this principle that generous giving yields 
great return. They didn't realize that they were actually robbing God, and that's serious business. In the scripture, Malachi, it says that very clearly. How, they said, God says, you're robbing me. And nobody wants to be found in that position, do we? The answer, I think, is to sit down and seriously consider how we live and the perspective we have on giving. Leighton Ford suggests beginning the simple life by asking four questions about the things that we do and the things that we buy. You might want to jot them down. Number one, will it have eternal and lasting significance? Number two, will it clarify my spiritual vision? Number three, will it make it easier to be devoted to Christ? Number four, will it further God's kingdom? Again, we can ask some really pointed questions and be excruciatingly honest with your answers. Does my current standard of living allow me to give generously? Or does does it need to be as high as it is? Does my level of giving reflect how God has blessed me? Am I more concerned with storing up treasure in eternity or amassing temporary toys here? Could I actually be robbing God? John Wesley once preached a message that summarized this issue really well. His points concerning wealth were simple and very straightforward. Three things. Make all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. Giving to to God's glory really rests in a biblical perspective. Acknowledge the true possessor. God owns it all. Embrace the priority. God deserves our all. And then exercise the tried and true principle. A heart that is generous toward God will be supplied generously by God. Many years ago, Thomas Jefferson made a great statement. He said, when the heart is right, the feet are swift. Let's make our hearts right before God in this issue. That's what will make an impact, a huge impact in this world for the kingdom of God. I want to finish with the example of two men who lived in Rome And we're at very different ends of the economic spectrum. Before gladiator contests in the Colosseum, everyone would stand waiting silently for Caesar. The contest could not begin until he arrived. When Caesar arrived, he was greeted with thunderous shouts of, Hail Caesar! He had more power and prestige and wealth than anyone else living at that time, he was worshipped as though he were a god. Elsewhere in Rome, there was another man. In a vastly different circumstance, he was in prison. He was chained to guards. He invested his time praying and writing to his friends. His name was Paul. One man lived in an opulent palace. The other lived in a dingy cell. 
One had almost unlimited wealth. The other had almost nothing. One was the center of attention. The other was virtually ignored. Almost 2,000 years later, people around this world recognize which of these two men made an eternal impact on the world. See, today they name their children Paul after the prisoner, and they name their salads after Caesar, <laughs> the emperor. See, being used by Christ in a significant way has nothing to do with high position or great riches. It has everything to do with a willingness to allow Christ to become your Lord. Give yourself first to Christ and he will direct you in the rest of your resources. Let's pray. Forbid it, Lord that our roots become too firmly attached to this earth and we should fall in love with things. Help us to understand that the pilgrimage of this life is but an introduction, a preface, a training school for what is to come. Then we shall see all of life in its true perspective. Then shall we not fall in love with the things of time but come to love the things that endure. Then shall we be saved from the tyranny of possessions, which we have no leisure to enjoy, of prosperity whose care becomes a burden. Give us, we pray, the courage to simplify our lives. Amen.